Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I am Mecca Don here with my co-host, V. Mama mentality for life. The NBA is back. It's back. Today is August 6th, 2020. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. And this is episode 40. We are 40 episodes in. We're quarantined still and social distancing due to the pandemic, but we're still going to figure out a way to bring you a show at all costs. On today's show, we talk to a social worker and clinical psychologist, Yojana Viramasuneni, and she talks to us about everything from police psychology, psychology of people dealing with COVID, kids, schools, suicide, race, and so much more. Conversation also, I've been looking forward to. Oh, yeah. This conversation is fantastic. And also, don't forget, next week, we will be talking to former NBA star Josh Childress. And that's a show you don't want to miss as well. V and I will also do some news and notes on this show. We'll break down a few issues from Ohio State and college football, the NBA being back, NFL opt-outs, the stimulus standstill in Washington, the Pac-12 players, and a lot more. Don't forget that our Patreon subscribers will get our episodes on Wednesdays a night early. If you want to help and subscribe, you can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. And don't forget to grab some wristbands and some face masks at shop.pilotboys.com. And be sure to leave us a five-star rating and comment on Apple. Let's go. Where are Pilot Boys at? Listening to the Pilot Boys podcast, we are here with a very special guest, Yojana Viramasuneni. She is a clinical psychologist and also a social worker with extensive experience. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello, hello. How are you Thank doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks no for joining. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Right now is a very, you know, crazy time kind of in, in society all across the world, honestly, um, for a multitude of reasons, obviously. Um, I guess with in 2020, it kind of started with COVID and the outbreak and the, and the fallout from that. And then it escalated into into the protests uh, nationally and internationally. And uh, it just seems as it's, it's become a very trying time, I guess, for a lot of different people, no matter what your circumstances are. And uh, so we wanted to kind of talk to you about some of those those yeah. issues from your perspective, someone who actually works in this field. Uh, I guess we'll start here. You know, now we're actually, you know, we're in August and schools are about to reopen. And, you know, everybody's kind of scrambling a little bit to kind of come up with a plan that makes sense. Right. Uh, but there've been reports that, you know, um, as a result of COVID and kids kind of being home and so, and so on and so forth, that there've been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of depression and mental health, not only amongst um, the kids, but also the parents. What have you been seeing? And how do you kind of analyze that as we move forward and try to make decisions about what we should do with schools moving into the fall? Yeah, I, I think it's so complicated, right? It's, it's the intersection of so many different issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all, your capacities all depends on your resources. Right. Different people's resources allow them to have more options. Yeah. And other people have um, much f- fewer options that then limits their experience of, of agency. Um, right. 
And so I think, yeah, a lot of parents are really struggling. I hear from my patients, my colleagues, uh, friends, um, if schools don't open, what happens? Yeah. How are parents supposed to work and be responsible for making sure that their children are educated properly? Mm -hmm. Can't just, you know, skip a grade and then try to pick up when schools do reopen. It's right. so critical for, for kids to have that consistency in learning, otherwise gaps develop. Um, and then I, I think the, the question of people who have uh, careers and jobs, um, how that affects their ability to be present and, and functioning well, while also having their, their children um, you know, worrying about what's going on with them. Um, and, and my sense is there's no clear strategy. Yeah. We're not getting a clear strategy um, at a federal level. Each state, each uh, county, each school district seems to be making different choices. Yeah. Um, and that's hard to navigate too, because what if you have different age kids in different school systems and kids with special needs and, and, and learning disabilities. Like what happens to special ed classes? What happens right. to, it, it's just really complicated. And um, I think people are gonna continue to be pulled in so many different directions and the stress increases. And in terms of one thing I wanted to ask about specifically mm-hmm. was the impact of this kind of virtual learning or virtual working, how that actually impacts people's psychology, whether it's a kid who's no longer able to go interact with friends at school and it's online, as well as workers who now are moving more and more into a digital space as well, where as opposed to going to the office and interacting with your parents via Zoom calls Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. Yeah. How how do you feel like that that impacts us Mm -hmm. as a society? As a society, uh, as, a, as a society, and then also individually, these students, yeah. as well as, as workers, in terms of the psychological impact on people. Yeah, um, I've seen a couple things. I've seen lots of kids who struggle with learning issues, like for example, ADHD. Mm-hmm. It's it's impossible to have a kid who's got who's struggling with attention issues or learning issues to sit down for six hours and expect them to be able to structure themselves and to have the executive functioning to go through systematically a lesson plan. It's just, I mean, it's hard for anyone to do that, but a 10 year old, a 15 year old who struggles, um, there's, so I see a lot of kids really getting frustrated. Self-esteem gets impacted. They're shutting down. Their anxiety levels are going up. Their depression levels are going up. Parents are getting frustrated and their anxiety is going up and their experience of overwhelm is going up. Um, We do have, there is some early research coming out that's showing that um, the online learning is just super ineffective and Mm. they're not learning. Mm. Things are not really, because just doing homework sheets isn't teaching, you know, Um, you're not getting the the care that a teacher can provide, making sure that you're actually taking information in and processing it and able to make use of it. Um, I I think it's going to be a long time before we really know the full impact of how learning is going to be affected for kids. Um, In terms of like uh, the, the other part of your question, like, on a social level, how is this? I, I feel like it's so hard to say. Something is changing, um, mm-hmm. but we don't 
We know it's not going to be what it was before. It's in the middle of reorganizing and reordering um, a lot of social structures and institutions and the way in which things happen. But we don't yet know what it's going to, the new form is going to look, right? Yeah. Everything's a huge question mark. Uncertainty is the breeding and ambiguity is the breeding ground of anxiety. Yeah. So, so yeah. I have a question. I have a question, too, because, you know, when, when we talk about kind of the response from a national level, um, or even a local level, mm-hmm. a lot of the conversation is around relief, financial relief, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what can we do, you know, stimulus and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem as though, and then there's also obviously conversation around the, the healthcare part, but mostly just kind of, you know, the medical, what do we do with, you know, masking and PPE and, you know, treatments and vaccines, all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I don't seem to hear a lot of is the mental, kind of the mental health plan and that part so what as this person who's a professional in that space how does that make you feel kind of and also i mean as someone came to you for your advice and said how should we deal with this mm-hmm. you know, i guess what, what what would your response kind of be to that sadly that's so that's so typical like yeah. health does not get the attention that it should be getting it's always sidelined Um, it's it's not covered at the same level that medical health is covered by insurance companies Mm -hmm. so much, even though there's supposed to be technically mental health parity, there there isn't. Um, Access to care is really hard. Everything from stigma to funding to um, not enough resources. There are not enough clinicians out there. There's a massive uh, shortage of psychiatrists across this Mm -hmm. country. It's a massive shortage of child and adolescent psychiatrists across the country. Mm. Um, and so it's just working at a deficit in, in so many ways. Um, what, do you, what do you attribute that shortage to? Just real quickly, sorry. Uh, the shortage of... The shortage of child psych, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and um, um, clinicians. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I think it, it's a lot of things. Okay. From... Um, that's not necessarily a field that a lot of physicians want to go into because it's not your making fields to, um, you know, different organizations uh, restrict the amount of child psychiatry training residency programs that there are out there. Mm. Lots of stuff is going on with that. But, you know, if I had a, if I had a magic wand and could make something happen, um, we need to do something at, at a social level that destigmatizes mental health care. Um, that yeah. stops thinking of mental health as only for people who are profoundly, profoundly mentally ill with the severe presentations, but rather um, shifting to thinking about mental health as a critical piece of balanced wellness. Yeah. And speaking of, the, speaking of the response, you know, as, as it's been, as we talked about, it's been varied, right? And one thing that I wanted to talk to you about was it feels like there's a increase in like this idea of conspiracy cultures, pandemic, yeah. you know, the anti-mask people. Why do you think as a society, mm-hmm. we have so much division, mm-hmm. what seems like common sense um, initiatives and things like that? What kind of drives that psychology or that culture Mm -hmm. of always doubting, coming up with conspiracies Mm -hmm. around something like this that's so Mm -hmm. serious and we're seeing the real results. People are dying. Mm -hmm. People don't want to believe that it's real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think that that speaks to paranoia fundamentally, right? Mm -hmm. It speaks to um, a lack of a social unification. And so if you don't see yourself as all belonging to one community and everybody is either in group or out group, then, you know, thinking of resources as finite and opportunities as finite, then it's just like a dog eat dog world. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then it, the sense of I can't believe anything you say and there, that, that's fundamentally about a lack of trust and a, and a lack of, uh, of feeling like we're, we are sharing the same reality, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's so pervasive right now, what, I, what you just pointed out. Um, I, I, I think it, there's probably lots and lots of reasons for it, but I fundamentally attribute it to um, there's no social cohesiveness, right? We, we, yeah. We're such um, we're such separated people by east, west coast, by educated, uneducated, by race, by gen. I mean, it, it's like we get our information from different places, and so if you don't believe that another person is, uh, is telling the truth and you can't even see the world through their perspective, you're going to question everything. Yeah. Even, uh, even facts are questioned right now. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what I was, I was going to ask. There's, is that lack of trust. Right. But that's also being reinforced by a lot of media entities. Right. And how is that, what is our predisposal as a society mm -hmm. to want to be told what to think? Right. It seems like, a lot of people are just based on their politics or based mm -hmm. on where they're from. Mm -hmm. Their decision making is based on who they go for their go to for their information. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they're just the psychology of media manipulation is probably the crux of my question of why you feel like in our society mm -hmm. there is so much of these different viewpoints that are so stark, mm -hmm. starkly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I personally, I, I, not that I'm like a social psychologist and have an expert in this area per se, but I can give you my personal theory about what I think. I, I think that has a lot to do with racial divisions, right? I think mm -hmm. that has a lot to do with the sense of fear that's, that so many um, white folks have in this country that particularly if you don't have a lot of resources and you're of a lower socioeconomic status, that something is being taken away from me. I'm going to lose something. Mm -hmm. I'm going to lose money. I'm going to lose status. I'm going to lose, um, you know, whatever it is, I'm no longer going to have the same position that I've always had. And that's deeply destabilizing and frightening, I think, right? Yes. Understandably, nobody chooses to willingly give up power. Yeah. <laughs> People don't go around saying, yes, let's power share. It just doesn't work like that. Um, and I think it, it, it's fear driven, right? I think it's a fear of um, what will happen to me and mine, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's causing a lot of intense reactions and it's causing a lot of um, aggression and negativity. You touched on you touched on the race, and we're actually going to ask you a, a lot more about that later. But before we get to that, I want I want to ask one other question, mm -hmm. uh, kind of around the COVID, uh, the fallout of COVID, and and uh, yeah. mostly like kind of in, unemployment, job loss, financial insecurity. 
that's happening all across the country and, and internationally, but all across the country. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is a very uncertain time for a lot of people. And, and the, it's, it's not that your typical un- times of uncertainty where you lose your job and you're like, oh man, that sucks, but let me go see what else is out in the market. A lot of people aren't necessarily hiring, you know, uh, stimulus mm-hmm. checks are being stopped. You don't really mm-hmm. know where your money's coming from. How do you even, where do you even start when you're dealing with somebody who, who comes to you necessarily and, and mm-hmm. ask for, for help? What are even some tips, I guess, for people who mm-hmm. might be listening to even mm-hmm. figure out ways to kind of get through this time period? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the most important thing is to do a full inventory of what, of what, um, what resources you do have. Who's, who's your support system? Who can you rely on? Who's available to you to ask for help? Um, and after that, it's about really, um, you know, figuring out what you can do and what you can't do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and prioritizing. I don't have a lot of what's, what making values-based decisions about what your priorities are, you know? Right. And if it's if you've got kids, obviously it's all you know typically going to be your kids. Right. And figuring out how do I best take care of my children with with what I do have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for parents, uh, one of the most important things is it, as as scary as it is to be unemployed and and to have a sense of financial insecurity. Um, you know, we know that children in times of stress and social upheaval um, can actually do okay if their parents can stay grounded and stay emotionally regulated. Mm-hmm. When parents are all over the place emotionally and they're reactive and they're not yeah. doing well or they're shutting down, kids pick up on that, right? Yeah. And that leads them within the context of an attachment relationship to feel insecure and uncertain. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's so important to figure out like how do I get the support that I need so I can stay stable and consistent as much as I can within right. whatever means that I can. Yeah, I think those are I would say those are the main things to be looking for. And are there are there any like you know resources that you know of um, professional resources either you know in person or, or online or whatever that people can tap into or that families can tap into. Um, to try to just help themselves help themselves deal with these issues. Yeah, I, a lot of the mental health organizations right now have great um, packets and 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 for families for parents um, it, in terms of like how to talk to your kids about what's going on, how to manage family dynamics. If you need to get linked into local resources mm-hmm. to help you get signed up for. Um, you know, assistance if you need it, if you need the assistance of, of a social worker to um, get signed up for Medicaid services, anything like that. Um, if you go to, for example, the American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association websites, um, there are so many resources and links to local organizations that you can tap into, places that are offering free or low fee um, psychotherapy services right now, things like there are there are things out there that are worth looking into right. what you can qualify for. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. yeah, and I wanted to move to the to the you mentioned race earlier, and obviously that's a big issue that I think is you know dominating society right now. And again, internationally, I'm going to keep saying yeah. that because these movements have kind of become international. And you know, one of the things that 
you kind of mentioned earlier when it comes to race um, mm -hmm. is, is, is the fear element, right? And then when you look at kind of the history of race and a lot of times, particularly in this country, mm -hmm. there's a, there was a big, uh, you can understand that a lot of it had to do with actually power and economics, right? Creating these divisions based on power and economics. Mm -hmm. Not to say there weren't other insidious factors behind it, but that was the driving force, right? And if you can get people to believe that there are people who are inferior to you, then you can suppress them and you can have them essentially work for you and build your country, right? Um, and then people won't necessarily feel bad about it. When you, when you study race kind of from a, and how it works kind of from a, a psychological perspective, mm -hmm. I don't even know, this is kind of an open-ended question. Where, where, what do you, how do you even, how do you even analyze it? How do you deal with the people who come, who are dealing with issues? Mm -hmm. How do you even talk to them about it? Mm -hmm. um, well, it depends on the person, right? Mm -hmm. if, if it's somebody who identifies as like a, a BIPOC person, right? They're, they think of themselves as black indigenous or a person of color. Mm -hmm. um, being, I, that means something totally different in terms of identity. It can be as complicated as layers of family dynamics around uh, race, skin color, skin tone. It can be around immigration status. It can be around religion. It can be, I mean, race, it, you know, it's so important that we hold an intersectional um, viewpoint when we think about um, identities that mm -hmm. there's no such thing as thinking about someone as just being, for example, black without also thinking about them as being gendered, right? Mm -hmm. Without also thinking about them as being um, situated within a socioeconomic status and right. et as much as we want to talk about categories because they are meaningful, because they do affect a person's lived experience, um, it's like we have to balance the complexity of each individual person's um, lived subjective experience because not everyone is going to have the same experience of race, right? right. right. It, all, it all depends. It yeah. all depends on what has happened, what you've gone through, what messages your family sent you, what messages the community around you sent you, mm -hmm. the generation you grew up in. Um, but often the first thing I do when people come in is um, is to assess for if there's trauma, if mm -hmm. there's any, um, and there often is, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's very, on a trauma spectrum, we can even identify it as PTSD. Like mm -hmm. if someone was targeted for um, their particular identity or their race. And so there's a lot of, lot of work that needs to be done around that, depending yeah. on the region which it happened to them, um, to something a little bit more what, we'll, what we can call complex trauma, something that's pervasive, that's happened since a person was a child. And it, 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 it really forms or misforms their experience of their self-identity mm -hmm. and their experience of others. And it, 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 um, it really permeates um, their experiences of trust and safety. Yeah. And it, it all really depends on each person's experience. Well, well, you mentioned something that was very interesting. You mentioned PTSD, right? And I think traditionally mm -hmm. when you hear PTSD, you think of, you hear of it in kind of the, the work context, right? Like veterans, mostly, but there are other people who can have PTSD uh, based on their experiences, right? So uh, let's talk, but let's talk about that for a second as mm -hmm. it pertains to race, because I think there, there's an interesting point there. 
when you generally, so for example, if you're dealing with a veteran, right, who's mm -hmm. back from war and who's never going to war again, mm -hmm. and they, have, they have to deal with PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you're dealing with maybe someone who is in an abusive relationship and they leave that relationship and now, you know, hopefully they'll never, they're not going to have to deal with that person or that situation again. Right. What, what about the, the people who are dealing with PTSD from, like you said, some of the trauma mm -hmm. um, who are still like dealing with that? You know, so, for example, I have trauma, emo, uh, ra racial trauma from things that have happened to me in this, in this mm -hmm. country, from being harassed by police, pulled over many times, mm -hmm. called the N-word, all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel that there, I don't see the escape. Right. I mean, I, it, it's, it's still here and present every single day. So it's something I will theoretically have to deal with for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. from, from a professional standpoint, how do you deal with those differently, right? One, which is something that's theoretically in the past and hopefully, not always, but hopefully, mm -hmm. and one that is in the past, but also is potentially still in your future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think what you just said is so critical. This idea of certain kinds of, um, of trauma, it, there's no exit, right? Mm -hmm. Kind right. of like baked into our experiences socially. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think what we need to do is help people find meaning and resilience out of those experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So you, for example, this, this, what you're doing with this podcast is a perfect example of what we would want someone to do to help them um, find agency and empowerment in dealing with what's happened to them, right? right. Now you're talking about these issues. You're educating mm -hmm. other people about these issues. You're not you know, pretending like it doesn't exist and disavowing it. You're acknowledging that this has had an impact on you emotionally. Right. And you're trying to do something with it and turn mm -hmm. it into something good mm -hmm. by giving back, by, by making that pain have been for a purpose and for a greater meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's when we talk about complex trauma, that's fundamentally what our end goal is, mm -hmm. is, is to turn something that's tragic and painful and, and, and make sense of it and heal and, and rebuild the story into something that can be positive and to and be of use, right? Mm -hmm. Turn it into something meaningful rather than annihilating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that would be my answer as well. Yeah. It's also why I think seeing so many young people out there right now protesting is just a beautiful thing. Because that's what I see when I see them is is they are um, rewriting their stories, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're, mm -hmm. learning, they're taking back their agency. They're claiming their voices, and they're they're not accepting things, right? And that Absolutely. that's them dealing with their trauma, right? Yeah. Within within the conversation that we're having around race right now, a central part of it is how our police um, police black Americans specifically, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's, there's obviously the race issue. That's the largest part of this issue, but it seems like we have a very, very deeply troubling issue with the police department itself throughout the country and how it should be handled. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Because one thing that I see is that the type of people who become police officers, right? Mm -hmm. They're already predisposed typically insecure they have those insecurities and in america mm -hmm. it seems like there is this psychology that they use for 
poor white people specifically, mm-hmm. that regardless of their situation, they still feel the superiority mm-hmm. dominance over minorities. Mm-hmm. So wanted to ask you about just what you think the core issue mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed to kind of start fixing the issues that we have with police and race mm-hmm. and power abuse in our country. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that has a lot to do with that the policing, the policing or the control of um, black bodies has been something that's happened since day one mm-hmm. in the history of this country, um, and and that it's such a central feature of. Um, so Toni Morrison, the the writer, uh, who amazing, right? She has this great theory um, uh, where she talks about um, blackness as kind of a ghost in the in the American psyche, right? Mm-hmm. And that it's always there, and it's it's the only way. Like whiteness is defined. Um, whiteness can be unlabeled because blackness is labeled and marked right and and so much of that so much of what it means to be an american and what this um government the society the culture the way the land was taken over the way the land was um built on everything is is constructed on um the control and power over um bodies of color, right? So in that sense, um, policing um, communities is, is a part of how power is maintained, structural power, institutionalized racism is maintained. And I, and I think that um, it, it has to start somewhere and it needs to start with thinking differently about how we, um, how we keep people safe, right? And who's responsible for keeping who safe and which communities safe and and how we do that? Um, I, I would argue that the thing we need to do is stop putting all the money into um, policing and with 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 intense like guns and the military the militarization of the police and all of that, and actually start with funding the revitalization of our schools. Um, the revitalization of, of of giving parents good jobs so they can take care of their families, of giving um, people good childcare so they can go work. Um, it's about redistributing the way in which we fund what we think is important in this country, and, and I think that's that's what we need to start doing. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great point, and that brings me to. It brings me to obviously the whole conversation of defunding the police because essentially yeah. that's what you really described. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people, um, well, there's some people that say abolish it completely and start it all, all the whole idea from the scratch. Yeah. And then there are other people that say mm-hmm. we don't necessarily need to abolish it completely, but we have to redistribute funds. We don't need to give them the level of funds that we're giving them. And there are other things that we need to start focusing on. And one of them in particular is social work, right? Because it seems as though there are a lot of things that police have been tasked to do or respond to mm-hmm. um, that they necessarily aren't equipped or um, shouldn't really be the ones responding to. Um, do you see that from a social worker's perspective? Do you see, I guess, where do you see the opportunity for 
you know, social workers or, or, mm-hmm. or that or other fields to mm-hmm. kind of be involved in situations that we, we to traditionally yeah. see police in. Absolutely. I think so. There's also good research where um, in in different communities, particularly like um, in Boston, they've done this amazing kind of experiments where they take um, neighborhoods like two or three streets in certain supposed, you know, high crime neighborhoods or something, and they redistribute the the money and provide each family with access to medical care, mental health care, schools, child care, all of like give them the resources they need and then they follow them for like five to 10 years to see what happens to these families. And, and guess what they look like? They look mm. Right. Of course. Yeah. They actually have the financial and economic resources to live um, like ever, like so many Americans. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And and crime goes down Mm -hmm. and violence goes down and the Mm -hmm. intergenerational transmission of of trauma goes down. Mm -hmm. Experience of stress and you know, they eat healthier, they make better food choices, just everything dramatically changes when you address the underlying issues of um, poverty and lack of resources as what's causing crime, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when that gets addressed, you don't need, um, you don't need the, these militarized police departments um, going around, um, you know, really, in many ways, almost like a police, it's a police state, some neighborhoods, mm-hmm. some places of the way in which the police monitor them. Right. Yeah. One, one follow- like we, we have research. We, we know yeah. it works, right? Right. One follow up question that I had to that, right, is um, you're also a social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, the issues that I've seen in our country is also like you said, because they aren't funded well, you even see the people that people are going to for help mm-hmm. oftentimes are so stressed and and going through so much that the experience that people have with their social workers mm-hmm. becomes very challenging too. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's primarily a result of being understaffed? Um, and, and how do we fix that? Obviously, more more social workers. But how do we kind of start addressing that problem? Because the resources that we have, mm-hmm. if those people aren't happy and they're stressed out, mm-hmm. how are they going to provide adequate care to people that need it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's all about underfunding, right? Same with teachers. Um, the burnout in in the in the helping professions is so high. Yeah. We're asking people to work miracles with so little, and. Yeah. It's not easy if you're already struggling and you're trying to help other people that the stress increases and you find yourself maxed out and yeah. not doing well. Um, yeah, I, I think it's about um, very much. So I'll go off on a little gender tangent for a second, but social work, um, teaching, even medicine nowadays, the more women who are entering these professions, the pay goes down, right? It's called the the feminization of professions and different disciplines. And, And we don't pay people well enough to do these jobs. So they don't, you don't attract people who, um, are, are, you know, 
the the best at what they're going to be able to do. You're asking people who are poorly trained and don't have the resources to do these things. And so we, we need to change. We need to change the way that we focus and we prioritize who we give our funding to and why we give our funding to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, we had a, a conversation before about um, back to the policing for a second. Sure. Kind of about experiences that you have had. I think it was in Evanston, if, I, if I'm not, yeah, if I'm yeah, not yeah. mistaken. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the things that we had talked about, and we that you know that's kind of prevalent in this conversation is kind of the guardian versus the warrior mentality, right? And even how they're mm -hmm. they're trained. Sometimes there are videos I've seen where you know the the top trainer of police says like look you gotta be ready to die you gotta be ready to kill you know those type of things law and order and, yeah law and order and that makes me wonder also about what type of mental health evaluations they're having and what type of things they should be having mm -hmm. um, to see if they're even fit to kind of protect and serve which is ultimately what is supposed to be happening mm -hmm. with just your experiences with them and i know and i know it hasn't necessarily been you know, so crazy and so vast, but mm -hmm. just talk to us a little bit about that in terms of what do you see there? Sure, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, just this past week, the city of Chicago had another suicide of a police officer. I don't know if you, if you all heard about that. And yeah. the CPD has one of the highest rates, I think, in the country of police officer suicides. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. the, the officers are not doing well either. Because right. how, I mean, just, think, I, I would, I just try to put myself in, in their, in their shoes and like what they're being asked to do, mm -hmm. but also I wonder what kind of conflict they, you know, the internal conflict about what their job means and what they're mm -hmm. about. And, um, and, and I don't think it's, it, 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 it can't have long-term consequences. Right. Mm -hmm. What I saw really was, um, a lot of people um, needing a sense of identity and then turning to the police department to give them that identity, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. A lot of folks, a lot of police officers are, are um, come from the military. And so mm -hmm. even right now we see a lot of officers who have served over um, and had been deployed who struggle with PTSD. Yeah. Um, and then they're, you know, they're sort of screened. They all know how to get through that screening. They all know mm -hmm. how to get through those psychological tests and say all the right things. Um, right. I, I think I think we we have to do a better job of of what we ask them to do, but also the support that we give them. And there's so much stigma within um, police communities about seeking mental health. Right. Um, high rates of substance abuse, high rates of alcoholism, high rates of depression with no treatment, right? Mm -hmm. And that's and then that's sustained over years and yeah. years and years. And we know a lot. There's also research out there about um, the levels of PTSD in police officers, but also poor health outcomes mm -hmm. and how they have just high blood pressure, eating poorly, dying younger. Um, it it's it's so clearly not serving anyone right on both sides of this on all sides i know you're 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 centered in chicago so i wanted yeah. to spend a little bit of time on 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 the subject we started here but one of the things people always kind of want to point out in in media and, and things like that is that the amount of violence that's happening in our inner cities and and trying to kind of say blame that 
as the problem versus the policing, right? And I wanted you to kind of take some time to address why that thinking is flawed, to just kind of make a blanket statement saying, well, these people are killing each other in Chicago. Therefore, we we need our police to be tough. We need law and order. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted you to kind of give people, enlighten people on what that issue actually is and why it's not what people see it as superficially, which is a whole bunch of young black people killing each other all the time mm-hmm. is what they try to push out. Yeah, you know, that's just absurd (laughs) for anybody who actually spends um, any time in um, in neighborhoods that are that are um, stricken by poverty, whether those are um, in the inner city or in the country in in rural areas. Poverty is the issue Mm. more than anything else. Mm. And when you have concentrated um, um, neighborhoods of intergenerational poverty, it's things aren't going to go well. Right. Yeah. People um, come up with their own ways of managing and it turns into war zones. Right. That's that's what we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. We're talking about um, not addressing the underlying structural and economic factors at place and instead using the symptom as the explanation. Mm A hundred percent. And it's and it's you mentioned something on that that I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about too. It's kind of the intergenerational thing, right? Because I think that there's, there's a, and, and then also, I just want to make a point real quick too, to something V said and then something that you said, you know, a lot of times when people say, oh, but, but Chicago, but this and that, I always ask them like, have you ever spent time in any inner city? No, they never have. Yeah. Do, you, do you know anyone? No. Have you tried uh-huh. to volunteer, mentor, anything? Mm-hmm. No, you haven't. We have, you know, we go to schools, Mm-hmm. I, I, we go to schools in the inner city. We talk to kids. We, you know, we, we actually spend t- the time to do that. And one thing that you can see very, I mean, within five minutes, like you said, mm-hmm. is that is, is what intergen- intergenerational poverty um, and, and oppression has oppression. done to these communities, not just, not just literally in what's available, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, another huge issue and education mm-hmm. and all that type of stuff, but also hope the idea of hope, even their, even how big they see the world, right? For people like who have been privileged to be educated and not have to deal with a lot of certain things, we see the world globally. For a lot of them, their their world is that neighborhood. People don't really understand that. And so I wanted you to touch a little bit more on the intergenerational trauma, because that's the thing that I think um, a lot of people don't necessarily understand. It's like, well, just, just, just decide to do it. Just, you know, just turn your life around, pick yourself by your bootstraps. Mm-hmm. not really understanding the intergenerational aspect of this and how it's affected society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, because it's perfect. I mean, I think we should underline your use of the word oppression because that is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, when people are systematically denied access to the same resources, um, and Chicago is such a problem in the terms of like how segregated it is Mm -hmm. and how um and that goes back way way back and um you guys have probably read that ta-nehisi codes article about reparations and how he Mm -hmm. is in chicago neighborhoods over generations what happened to the values of the properties and 
and how basically because of the way taxes are done, um, money is actually being extracted from the west side and from the south side and being redistributed to the other parts of the city the the, the white parts of the city mm -hmm. so it's not even just that we're talking about underfunding we're talking about the extraction of fundings right yeah. and yeah. and so that's that's oppression that's systematic yeah. institutionalized intergenerational oppression mm -hmm. and it's unacknowledged right it, we won't name it for what it is. We won't call it for what it is. And, and so that has so many consequences mm -hmm. Everything from if you have, you know, four or five generations without even basic high school education, right? Mm -hmm. If you have four generations with um, lack of access to healthy food, Right, and that's what we're seeing right now. Brown and black people who who are being, um, in so many ways, just um, that it's painful to see these death rates and how how hard brown and black communities are getting hit. Um, because of lack of health resources, mm -hmm. because of poor diet, right? Yeah, yeah. Everyone is um, calling, saying things like in the beginning when COVID first started, they kept saying things like, well, we're noticing that there's weight issues involved, right? Mm -hmm. but it seems like overweight folks seem to be really affected by COVID and have higher mortality rates. Um, no, what that is, is diabetes. You know, what that is, is poor food choices and poor access to food. That's that's the result of poverty. Yeah. Right? That's intergenerational poverty is is lack of food choices, right? Lack of health care, lack of education, um, not having enough means to be able to move out of one neighborhood and go into another neighborhood, not yeah. having any jobs in the place that you live in, not having enough um, bus lines to get out of the neighborhood so that you can go to a job at a different yeah. Yeah. Or when you do get a job, it's, you know, pays something so ridiculous that it you're you're not you're not able to really sustain your family in any meaningful way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, I think intergenerational oppression leads to all of these systemic issues that we're talking about right now. I have one, other, one other question, one other follow up on that real quick, V is is kind of the effects of kind of capitalism on psyche right because i think one of the ways that the government or not necessarily the government but the united states is kind of positioned um this society is that one of those where you rags to riches the american dream we all can get it right mm -hmm. and, and and that kind of has dominated the way that a lot of people think here mm -hmm. and i feel like there's probably there are probably some good aspects to that but there are also some in a ways, cruel aspects to it, too, because it's just not true for certain people. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question to you is, how do you see that from a psychological perspective affecting mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. who don't feel like, who see that, like mm -hmm. on TV or whatever, but don't feel like they can attain it? How do you even yeah. help somebody address that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the American delusion, right? Mm. More than anything than the American dream. Like, it's, mm. we know for a fact that that's not possible mm -hmm. for people. Um, and yet, I don't know, it's kind of genius what, what you guys think. This idea of how whiteness never gets marked or labeled. And so we never talk about, until more recently, I think, um, that 
that there is a such thing as a white identity or that there's a such thing as a white community, right? Because they're, they're all individuals, right? But, but people who are people of color are all a group. And so yeah. it's this like really sinister kind of um, historical thing that's happened where um, it, the default is whiteness, but we never call it that. Right, mm-hmm. as our default or as the norm. Right. So the American dream is the white American dream, but we don't we don't say that we don't mm-hmm. label that right because right. that's who actually it's ever been possible for. Even though we ne- the more research lately has been showing that you know people the numbers are actually going backwards and and um, even white folks. Uh, from the generation before are financially doing um, more less than their generation before them. Wow. So um, I'm sorry, I veered off in answering and thinking about your question, but no, I, fine. I think that, yeah. And I think capitalism is tied up in that, right? Yeah. Right. If, if we all agree that we all want to make the most money because making the most money is what's going to give you the best life. And then it's it's open market, so mm-hmm. it's, it's a control. Right. Market. Um, yeah. We call it that free markets, mm-hmm. which is not true. No, um, not. They're regulated in all different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it it it's like a it's like a shared delusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. we, all, yeah. we all know it's not true, but we're right. just not, the emperor has no clothes on, but we're not going to say anything about yeah. it. Yeah, it's like someone right. winning the lottery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you can you can get people to like buy into that because it's back to what you said earlier, Mecca, it's, it's hope, but it's false hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I want to follow up to his follow up, mm-hmm. which is, which is the larger question here, right? Mm-hmm. We see all these problems. We live in a country where we have the resources to mm-hmm. fix a lot of these problems, mm-hmm. but they aren't fixed. And we've talked a lot about systemic institutional institutionalized oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Can you shed a little light on that? One thing is you, we've talked about also is how power corrupt corrupts and how power also leads to oppression. Mm -hmm. It seems masterful. I'm always fascinated by how this, how they make this work, right? Mm -hmm. They get us all to buy into the system into mm-hmm. the institution mm-hmm. to play this game that a small group of people are essentially manipulating all of us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Why is it that we're so easily fooled? Why are we so gullible mm-hmm. as, as the masses? And why do, we, mm-hmm. why do we let this continue for generations and generations? And let me say, and V, let me follow up with that real quick too, because that reminds me of something mm-hmm. along the same question, but, you know, and you start to see like all these corporations throwing money and you know at black businesses and throwing money at this and but but yet they don't have any black directors they don't have any black executives their hiring practices are a disaster mm-hmm. and and i think well that some people are eventually going to be distracted by that as mm-hmm. well and things will kind of go back to normal and that goes to kind of what v was saying is like it yeah. feels like they keep figuring out ways to mm-hmm. to manipulate mm-hmm. yeah it i, I I don't know if I have an answer to that per se. Um, I, I maybe maybe it has something to do like okay, 
take um, our family's experience via as Indian Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Immigrants, right? Um, we are kind of um, told and buy into this idea that if you can come to this country and you and you, you know, you bust your ass and you work and work and work and work, you will be successful. You, yeah. you buy into this system and you will be right. But every immigrant that comes into this country has to adopt um, an anti-black stance, right? Mm-hmm. They have to kind of, um, com- they have to be complicit. Yep. It's taught over there, right? In the TV shows that they show totally. everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Black person is the bad person. They know it before they even come over. I think it's across the immigrant experience. Mm-hmm. So you have to be complicit in that. You have to kind yeah. of agree, okay, we're all going to agree because we've labeled blackness as bad, right? In this mm-hmm. black, really problematic binary. And so everyone who comes after that has to either be split into black or not black right and then you have to agree you have to kind of agree and be complicit with saying that that blackness is bad Mm -hmm. so everything i do is not that and so Mm -hmm. the further away i get from that the closer i can get to whiteness which is not going to happen but you know the closer i get to whiteness then the more good i am right we have and that's a colonial thing and we can talk about post-colonial stuff that happens in that sense too but that's my belief is that it's structured that way and if you participate and you accept that then you get to be part of like the capitalist structure that allows you to have some success right Mm -hmm. but if you don't accept that that what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to break, come here and not do like not accept it. And then what happens to you? Yeah. Well, that's, that's such a, that's such a, a very insidious kind of just hidden kind of thing that's happening in society, which you just mentioned, right. Which is, you know, some of the things are outwardly spoken and said and said, but then there's also kind of a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes, right. Understandings that people have that they never even speak on until maybe even they get on a show like this, right? Like, obviously, I'm sure you guys have had, we've had these conversations, but mm-hmm. the people who know this stuff, but who'll never speak on it, right? Yeah. And, uh-huh. and, and and part of that is because of, of fear, like you said, of they, they don't, they, how are you going to convince somebody to be part of what has been labeled as bad? You, I mean, that's, just, yeah. that's, that's not convincing. And also there's this thing that they do to make us like, my, words like phrases like the model minority and things like that to separate us amongst each other as brown people right Um, as well that we feel good that we're better than another group right because they think we're better than another group and 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 that's another part of this that's that's problematic british method of conquer and divide divide and conquer right yeah and that's a kind of part of what people see with white supremacy and white supremacists Mm-hmm. Is that a lot of that seems to be in you, your, you know, I get your opinion on this. Uh, is it seems to be driven by fear, right? Of, of, of losing what they have built, so to speak, or what they have or their privilege or power. And that's why a lot of people will say, Oh, well get out, get out of the country. Or mm-hmm. that's why they'll go, you know, kill nine black people in the church, or that's why they'll, you know, protest or support mm-hmm. the Confederacy or whatever it is. Um, it seems as though we're seeing that. I mean, we've been seeing that in this country, but we're seeing a lot of that happen right yeah. now also kind of explicit, yeah. like, mm-hmm. right? It, it's yeah. almost like since Trump, it's become okay. 
course it went underground for a little while. Yeah. It wasn't as over overt. Um, and yet I think there's something there around um, somewhere along the way, because it's so baked into the system, nothing needs to actually be labeled as uh, racist or or that's white supremacy, right? Yes. It's like, no, American democracy and capitalism as it's structured is a good thing. But the underbelly yeah. of that is white supremacy, right? Yeah. The underbelly yeah. of that. So in so in, in psychoanalysis, we really have this concept of uh, the, the binaries meet each other in order mm-hmm. to put the whole system up. Mm-hmm. If you drop one part of the binary, then the other one also dies, right? Yeah. Yes. It exists without the tension holding the two right. together. And mm-hmm. so well, you can't, I mean, so we got to replace that with something with what? Well, yeah. That's a great point. You know, mm-hmm. if, if every black person left this country and every minority left this country, mm-hmm. there would, you don't think they would find division, a way to divide, they would still find a way, people at the top would still find a way to divide, right? Of and they'd still find a way to maintain the power and, and mm-hmm. oppress. And so that's mm-hmm. something that I think is, you know, unique to just power and greed, mm-hmm. right? And anywhere you go across the world, you're going to see mm-hmm. that. Not, I'm not to not to excuse what happens in the United States, but literally in every country, you are going to see some form of oppression, and it could come from race or even skin tone or caste, obviously, or religion yeah. or whatever. That that is something that is 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 unfortunately kind of not unique to this country and kind of just the way human beings live. And I've always lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you brought his name up, so I wanted to obviously ask because we. We see a lot of psychological things going on with our president uh, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and what amazes me about him specifically, right? We can see that he's a narcissist, that he's stupid, But despite these kind of psychological issues that he has, mm-hmm. he's still masterful in how he implements strategy, right? Mm-hmm. The dichotomy between somebody who clearly has mental issues but in 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 kind of a very sinister way Uh is a brilliant strategist right it's like he understands how these people think and what he needs to say to these people Uh to rally around him Uh can you you kind of it's a deep and loaded question just get into the psychology of trump and trumpism why people can get past that obvious superficial part which is mm-hmm. crazy mm-hmm. right yeah you know yeah i think you labeled it i think if you go to the dsm and look up um the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder it, it's uncanny like how he meets every single one of the criteria right it's undeniable in that way um my my other thoughts that I have about Trump is how much it has to do with patriarchy, right? And that um, this idea of there's the the grandfather or the father that we all know is like not okay and is not well and makes and it and can be um, um, you know harmful in so many ways, but but we don't say anything about it. Because yeah. what he provides, everybody needs, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I think there's like a big piece of that going on right now. That this this is, you know, and which is why I think Biden is so appealing to so many people because he represents like a that older white patriarchy 
but just the nicer version of it or the nicer <laughs> version of it. And then, and then Trump's like, like the evil, sinister, other world version of it or something like that. But I, I, I don't know. You, you, you guys tell me what you think on this topic too. I feel like Trump represents like the dying last breath of a certain kind of demographic of America. That's 100% right. I think, yeah. you know, and, and V called him a brilliant strategist. I don't know if I'll call him that, I, but I do think that he is a marketer, right? And he's done that his entire life, literally. I mean, we don't even know really what his financial situation has ever been, but we've come to kind of accept him as a tycoon or as an icon, right? And, and when it comes to money and in every community, not just in white communities, even black communities. I mean, when you say Trump and, and spades, I mean, like this, like those are words that we've come to 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 kind of symbolize his name's kind of come to symbolize like bossness right um and i think he's just a marketer so he will see what's what what does he feel like he can market and sell and to who and he'll market it and sell it you know and um what it seems like though now does that mean fraud? That, say again does that mean fraud if one is a marketer hustler Clearly mean fraud. I would, I would, I wouldn't call I him think a if you, I think if you disrespectful to the profession. I think if you knowingly, <laughs> yeah, if you know, obviously, if you knowingly market something that you know is not true, mm -hmm. um, in order to get people to buy in or buy something, yeah, that's 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 pretty. That's fraud. That's that's pretty much the definition of fraud. Mm -hmm. So you know, I the I guess the the last thing is in what you said, which I think is also important. It kind of goes back to what I was saying also about. Um, white supremacy. You see a lot of his little dog whistling when it comes to that, right? He'll he'll retweet a video of somebody screaming white power, and then he'll delete it. You yeah. know, he'll like you know say, you know, "All right, you, you know, all you white suburbs, suburbs, don't worry, you guys are good. We're not going to do any low income housing anymore." You know what I mean? Like he knows how to gaslighting. That's that, that's gaslighting and dog whistling, right? And so it's kind of like uh, I think we're going to see right in this election what happens because you know if you read the polls, he's getting killed. But I don't read the polls, right? Because it just, you know, he was getting killed last time, too, and he, and he ended up winning. Mm -hmm. um, but we're going to see at the end of the day, like what what is going to prevail here? Because a lot of people and this goes to, you know, something that you said about the kind of the, the grandpa who says a lot of crass things, but you're like, but he's providing all the money. So mm -hmm. and I feel like there are a lot of people who are conflicted, mm -hmm. um, people who supported him before who are like, let's just see what happens. And then they like, wait, ah man, my stock, my stocks are going up. And my money's gone up since he's been president, but I hate what he says and I hate what how he makes people feel and that he doesn't try to unite the country and all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna see, this is gonna be a reckoning in my mind, this November, it's potentially gonna be a reckoning. It's gonna really, really reveal who America is and what America wants to be. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, it's it's gonna be a real eye opener. That's Those are my thoughts, so. yeah. I, yeah. One, one thing I'll say before we transition, I feel like yeah. I'm giving this guy too much time. Um, <laughs> at all but i think part of this is also that i think in a way it's been healthy right for america to be exposed for what it really is yeah. i think uh -huh. you know we've dealt with this in government people say all oh, the democrats are better than republicans yeah. if you look at both parties they've both done things to system systematically oppress people right mm -hmm. uh, and and that's just a pot part of power but we needed someone like trump who would just exposes it in full to actually start dealing that's why we're seeing a lot of these movements i don't think they're possible without someone as extreme as him who just puts it all out there mm -hmm. i think we're right yeah 
Yeah. I have one other question on this and then and then we're going to move on to something fun and get you out of here. Thank uh-huh. you so much for taking the time, by the way. Sure. But I, I wanted to talk kind of about the, the, the kind of the white guilt, so to speak. Right. And you see that even from a lot of white, quote unquote, liberals and um, kind of this feeling of like, God, this is I don't necessarily deserve, so to speak, this standing that I've been given in society. Um, and I don't necessarily know what to do about it. Like, I can't change the fact that I'm white, right? I'm not going to, you know, bleach my skin or, or darken my skin or whatever. Um, I don't think it's right what's happening to mm-hmm. black and brown people. And mm-hmm. man, this is terrible, but mm-hmm. how do I, I can't escape what's been given to me. How does, you know, we talked about it from the, the, the side of the a person being oppressed, right? Um, let's talk about it from, from that perspective in terms of just how you see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, so I, I have lots of patients who are, who are white folks who are really grappling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think that there should be some um, conflict. I think there should be some pain. And I think there should be some deep kind of like coming to terms with what has been my participation um, in, in this idea of uh, you don't have to have consciously known that you were participating to have gotten the benefits of white privilege. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But once you know that, then I think that um, there should there should be a process mm-hmm. of, of deep self-reflection of how, how is my life situated within whiteness and white mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, What are the things that, you know, I think it, you have to do an inventory mm-hmm. and go through the ways in which one has um, ha- had great benefits due to one's whiteness. Right. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's, it's about, um, doing that work, but not burdening other people with um, that experience of guilt, right? Like, so yeah. about white fragility and what that mm-hmm. means. And the, the amount of emotional labor that so many people of color have to do on a daily basis, managing so many things, right? It, mm-hmm. It's like, it's something that many white folks don't even have to think about. They don't have to expend that energy. They don't ever have to carry that stress or that weight. Like these are important things to, to start recognizing mm-hmm. all of the things that are unspoken, all of the things that are implicit, all of, all of the things that are structural that have been allowed to hide because of how much whiteness blinds. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think that there is nothing wrong with people sitting in that muck. Yeah. In fact, I think it's good. And, and that's where growth will, will come from. Um, and then I think this is why the, you know, the idea of allyship is so critical. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So what are you going to do now? Right. Right. Now have this knowledge and responsibility of that knowledge. You, how, what steps are you ready to make? And if yeah. you're not ready to make them, like, be clear with yourself as to why, right? Yeah. Why you're not ready to make any changes or participate. Uh, absolutely. Um, to connect this back just real quick to the Trump. Yeah, go ahead. Because you know how, like, um, right now they're really talking about the suburbs, you know? Yeah. 
and it's it's white women in the suburbs that are just really going to be like the 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 the, the demographic that's going to make this big change, right? Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that what's happening with the protests is and all that stuff in Portland with the line of moms yeah. and the line of dads and then the line of like that. That's what needs to happen yeah. to get the suburbs to open their eyes, right? And that's what, and, and the fact that the so-called suburbs are not white anymore, right? Mm-hmm. They're immigrants, right? There are other, there are everybody who's mixed and in between and this and that. Um, it's a demographics is, is going to make that change too as well. But right. yeah, but my personal belief is is some psychic pain is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. before we get to the fun stuff can i ask you one more question um it's 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 unrelated to but related to a lot of the conversation we've had and it's something that i've always wanted to ask kind of a professional about um another public figure who's connected to chicago um, the conversation around mental health Uh is is had around kanye west quite a bit right because he's such a huge public figure Uh i wanted to get your thoughts first of all i think a lot of it is strategic strategic craziness but he marketing yeah marketing as well but he's he is a diagnose he says he's a diagnosed bipolar right and it's another kind of fascinating example he's obviously brilliant he's talented but it seems like the obsession, the, the narcissism, the obsession with attention um, causes him to say a lot of things, but it has opened up a conversation around mental health. Yes, it has. So what do you think overall about his role in society and his role mm-hmm. as far as understanding mental health? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the piece about if it's marketing. Mm-hmm then that's not a good thing. If we've got Trump and Kanye both. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think they're the same side of the, of a coin. Yeah. Yeah. You, do you, you guys know that saying by Audrey Lord, um, you can't use the master's tools to take down the master's house. Yes. <laughs> you know that, um, then that's not good. If everybody's using the exact same tools around marketing, that seems like, what, what does that mean? I don't know what that means fully, but um, yeah, I saw that stuff recently with him when he, I, it, it was so painful. It was so, I mean, yeah. didn't seem okay to me. Right. Yeah. And I just was like, having bipolar is like, so um, it's not, it, it's it's so hard. It's just it destroys people. Yeah. Um, it's it destroys your set. Your reality testing is gone, right? Um, what it does to your family, but just the pain and the isolation that people experience. I mean, it, I don't know how you guys felt when you saw the, him in that video when he was declaring his presidency or whatever that was, and um, like it was so obvious, like that that manic kind of presentation, like. Whoa, I can't even imagine what's happening. So let me, you said something that's real right there that I think is very important. I, I, I have to ask you about it because you said it was so obvious, right? And I think mm. sometimes I say that to people about certain things and then I take a step back and I realize like, wait, it was obvious to me mm-hmm. based on my experiences and right. understanding my research and education. Right. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is that we as the average citizen 
doesn't necessarily know how to diagnose that, how to say, oh, is that person like, like what V said, is that just straight up? Uh, obviously, he's doing this for marketing. There are a lot of people who are convinced of that and you can't tell them anything about mental health. And then there are mental health professionals that are looking like, that's the most obvious bipolar situation I've ever seen. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's like this, this thing in society that's so hard. I don't know how we address this. But how you can do have you, both, right? They can both be true as well. Well, if you have one, if you have mental mm -hmm. health, Mm -hmm. then, and that's the other thing, I guess, is to analyze V's question is, or V's point is, if you have mental health, does that trump everything? Trusty, is he using that word, right? Does that like beat everything? Is that more important than you also having narcissism? Because the narcissism, does it come from mental health potential? Mm -hmm. Or like, how do we, I don't even know where a person like, people like us can even go or to figure out that type of thing. You yeah, know? no, I, thanks for pointing that out. You're, you're so right. Like how, yeah. I guess, um, someone who has seen what mania looks like mm -hmm. up close and has worked with people for many years now there's there are certain signs and symptoms and that 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 pressured speech that kind of um intensity that you can tell he hasn't slept for a long time mm -hmm. the, the kind of the way his words aren't connecting, how fast he's talking. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a lot that's very typical of what a manic episode looks like. And mm -hmm. if you see many of them um, versus like in movies and TVs, when you see someone who's acting and acting, yeah. Yeah, they don't get the symptoms right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, right. something in there that like would never be in there with someone with mm -hmm. that diagnosis mm -hmm. and so it that that looked real to me based on what i saw whether it then after the fact gets used for marketing purposes i guess they're trying to do something with that but um just with a lot of the clients that i've worked with uh particularly african-american clients like the conversation around mental health has i mean whether it's because you know, kind of like, oh, my God, what is Kanye doing? This is so embarrassing. Or, um, whoa, that looks familiar to me. Is that what I look like? Or no. that's what my mom used to look like? Like, mm. is that what was going on? It wasn't that they were just a bad, evil person. It was that they were really mentally ill and yeah. were untreated for you know, for decades and decades, because untreated mental illness just gets worse. It yeah. just, it, yeah. things don't go well over And time. that's the thing about like mm -hmm. physical, physical impairments, people can see them, right? And they can understand like if, right. you know, but the mental ones, a lot of times it's hard for people to, to know or analyze them, you know? And also, and also it seems like managing and dealing with celebrity, right? It's, we hear about celebrity suicides and depression. A lot of people think that their lives are so great they're dealing with unique mental health issues as a result of being celebrity. It's not normal right. to be a celebrity, right? Yeah. It's like abnormal scenario that people have to manage. And if you're already not, not really right. resilient and then you add those circumstances on top of it, I could see how it could really take its toll on a person. Right. Absolutely. All right. So we are going to switch gears. So we, first of all, this is, this has been phenomenal, um, yeah. heavy, but it's necessary. Good. I'm talking to you guys. It's really Yeah, fun. no, this is great. It's been important for us. And I think it'll be, mm -hmm. you know, even more important for our listeners as well. 
Um, but we're going to get to something fun. This is mostly a sports music, pop culture show. Um, <laughs> but obviously, we like to talk about real issues as well. So we are going to break off into what we call our top fives. And we're going to okay. ask you kind of personal mm -hmm. question. Just helps us get to know you a little bit, little bit better. Sure. Uh, so tell us, let's start with this one. Your top five musicians of all time. Personal. Oh, uh, <laughs> okay. Prince is up there for me. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, lately, I was not a Beyonce fan. When she first came out, I didn't really like her very much. I thought she was silly. Um, but I really am like so profoundly love what she's doing right now. So I have to put myself in that category of being a Beyonce fan now. Yeah, I listen to her a lot. Like I, I find myself putting her on a ton. Um, yeah, so Beyonce. Um, my partner has really gotten me into Bonnie Vare. Do you guys know this guy? No, I don't. Okay, super chill, great. I really like that. I've been enjoying his music. Check it out. Check it out. Super yeah, for sure. Listening to him too. Um, uh, let's see, who else? Who else do I listen to a lot on repeat? Jay Z. I'm a big Jay Z fan. Like mm -hmm. way before Beyonce, it was Jay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, let's see, who else do I listen to? I don't know. Gosh, I think Nina Simone, big Nina Simone. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I listen to her a ton too. Love it. That's a good list. Yeah. Cool. I know you've had uh, some interesting personal interactions with some some big time athletes. The uh, <laughs> brothers told me about. Oh my God. You have a top five athlete list. Oh. I don't even know if I could answer that question. <laughs> like that's how I know about sports or follow sports. Um, the cool there are people beyond that are sports figures that have had an impact beyond sports as well. On me, uh, oh God, I wish I could. I I feel so bad. I wish I could answer. Just that. Give us, change the question. Give us, yeah, yeah, change it up. I'm going to change your time. Yeah, the closest I get to sports is when my brother comes to my house and puts ESPN on. I would okay. assume you'd be a, a Muhammad Ali fan. Oh yeah, Serena, Serena Williams. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think they're awesome. I love them. I love both of them. They're great. Okay, so, well, I guess well, I'll, well, I'll, let me let me change. I have I have a, I, another question I want to ask. You yeah. too. Instead of that list, let's mm -hmm. do a list of like uh, maybe three mm -hmm. either author, authors or people kind of um, thought, thoughtful people, thought leaders right now mm -hmm. in society that you feel like are people that pe should pay attention to. I've, you've mentioned multiple through this conversation from Tony mm -hmm. Morrison, Tana Hazy Coates. Mm -hmm. I mean, are there any other people that you feel like are right, people need to be paying attention to, the, to this person? Yeah, I think Abraham Kendi and the stuff that he's doing right now. Are you guys reading him at all? A little that, bit, not fully yet. Racist. Um, mm -hmm. That's like his book that he has for the kind of general population, right? And then he has a more technical academic book on the history of racist ideas in America. Okay. That book, oh my gosh, if you really want to understand how all of this came to be, that's that's the text right okay. there to really get to. I'm on it. I, he's, he's really profound and amazing and impressive. Uh, to me, Toni Morrison, mm -hmm. uh, she was the first person I ever read reading The Bluest Eye when I was in um, high school. 
opened my eyes. It was the first time that I had ever read anybody talking about or referring to anything that I had even remotely experienced. A sense of alienation from not mm. like I belonged and that yeah. somehow or another desiring whiteness because you just didn't want to be bad anymore for not mm. being right? yeah. um, And she's been, for me, she's just been intellectually, psychologically. I think reading any Toni Morrison will give you a roadmap of what self-liberation looks like, but also self-healing, particularly for, um, I think, women. She's genius, right? Yeah, she is a genius, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The question I was going to ask was maybe a little bit more fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, The top five, your top five travel destinations that you've been throughout your lifetime or cities, they can be. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I can do that one. (laughs) Let's do it. Um, I think uh, Iceland is one of the coolest places I've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, Everybody says that, man. I see, I've never been there. You gotta go. It's yeah. Like, um, it felt like you're like going to the moon or something. Wow. Um, the most unique and out there, Iceland for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, other places that I've, I've really liked is um, I, I went to Israel and Egypt. I packed around there when I was younger. And I think Israel is a really fascinating place. Mm-hmm. Like you see 18 year olds walking around with like um, these massive like automatic weapons because all of them are required to be in the army um, to see the, the Palestinian occupation was interesting. Had a fascinating experience there. Of course, India, I'm going to say, right. Mm-hmm. It's just India is such it's a vast. Yeah. It's so vast. North. Anywhere South. in particular. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to say South because that's where, where I'm from. And I think it's the best. I think one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to in India is, is the Kerala coast. Yes. Right. The beaches and the beauty of that coast is just unparalleled. It, it's amazing. Uh, Mexico. I love Mexico. I love going to Mexico. Have you guys been to Mexico City? Not yet. I, I haven't. I've been to Cabo and... Tawana, but I've never been to Mexico City. It's the most like cosmopolitan, beautiful cities. I really, really love Mexico City. People are deterred because they're told that it's so unsafe, but everyone that's gone there has told me it's been unbelievable experience. Yeah, I mean, as long as you're not doing dumb things, but yeah, we rented a car and drove through Mexico, it was fine. It was And then, okay, my last one is probably gonna be uh, Rome. Mm. Rome, Italy. Yeah. Amazing. Really nice. beautiful. Just nice. everything they do is like beautiful. Yeah, it is. Even just like small little things. It's just small details. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Well, thank you. Oh. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining thank us on you. Voice Podcast. This has been great. Very enlightening, I'm like really I said earlier. It. I love what you guys are doing. Great work. Thank you. We hope to have thank you back from time to time because mental health and psychological issues are, are, are something that never I'd uh, love to I really would. let me know when you need to and I, I'd be happy to thank you well be safe and, and take care of yourself bye love the pilot boys podcast support us on patreon supporters can pledge as little as one dollar we have some cool perks on there check out www.patreon.com forward slash pilot boys podcast Show us some love today. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast, news and notes. V, you ready? Let's hit it. Let's go. 
the NBA is back, man. And uh, to be honest, as a sports fan, it's been great. Um, you know, obviously, we always, you know, we, we have the concerns about COVID and all that type of stuff. But um, we we really want sports back as sports fans. And NBA has been able so far to do it pretty, pretty well. Um, and not just has, you know, have they been able to create a bubble that's been working, but also the games themselves have been have been pretty good, um, really good, actually. What, what stood out to you so far? Yeah, I think the, I think it's clear that these guys were ready and had been working hard um, while they were away. Right. There's obviously going to be some glitches in terms of maximum efficiency, not, you know, getting the offense right. But what you're seeing consistently is teams playing hard mm-hmm. and we're seeing very competitive games. Um, and, and that's all you can ask for. Right. My, yeah. my happiest thing is that we get to see the, the inside the NBA team at TNT on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Again, they kind of give me the best entertainment of all, out of all of this. I, I, I love them and those guys, I miss them. And that's one thing about NBA season. I always look forward to. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy that it's back. Like I said, as a sports fan, um, uh, I think that NBA has been, been great in what they've done and been able to kind of put these games on and, um, create a bubble and keep their players uh, safe. So that's been really good. But the flip side of that really kind of is the NFL, right? The NFL um, kind of just given the way that it's set up, the, the, the amount of players and, and just, just the way the game is played, uh, it seems like they're kind of headed in the opposite direction in a way. Um, you have a number of players, even high-profile players that are opting out of the season already. Uh, and it just doesn't appear that they're going to be able to kind of keep these players safe from getting the coronavirus. Uh, and I just don't know what to think of, of, of the NFL. What do you think is going to happen this year? I mean, it, it, it comes back to how these two organizations operate, right. And their, their, their modus operandi, right. Mm-hmm. Like the NBA. Okay. I see you with, I see you with the legal jargon. <laughs> <laughs> I picked up a few things. Got you. Got you. The, the difference between the NBA and their embrace, how they embrace the players as a part of the process. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about, they think about player needs in the process of how they come up, they came up with the solution that they came up with. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a huge mistrust between the NFL and the NFL players because mainly because of how the NFL operates. It's essentially mm-hmm. We're going to create the rules. We know what's best and we're going to figure it out. And I don't think that that's a great way to operate and can continue so long as, as players are the reason people come out to watch the product. Yeah. Right. And, and so, and, and that actually is a good segue into kind of uh, Odell Beckham's comments that came out um, this week, basically of him saying he doesn't think that they should be playing. He thinks that the only reason why they're playing is because of money um, and that he just doesn't think that it's safe to play. He's not going to opt out, but he doesn't believe so. And the reason and the reason why I think that's important more so. And, and to your point is that you don't really hear NBA players saying that yeah. um, you, you you heard some of it, like some from Damian Lillard earlier on. But you knew that he was going to be at least part of the process. Right. And that they, they were going to come to something together that they all felt like worked. We don't I don't think that we see that with the NFL. Yeah. And then also it's just like we're reading their plans and it's just like, they just sound lazy, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. how are you going to have your players go home after practice? How are you not going to quarantine your players 
72 hours before a Sunday game? How are you not doing these things and think that they're essentially almost saying that we're going to operate as normal, right? Yeah. And it's like that can't. If you're it's not, not in- it's not possible to do that, you know, and, and to not without to and not give yourself or at least have major disruptions. If you do that again, this is and that's this is the unique thing that I think people have always forgotten about. It's not necessarily about. OK, there are a few things. One is, are people going to get sick? Are people going to get really, really sick? Are they going to c- contribute to community spread? Right. That's obviously the bigger issue. But then even just the, the kind of day-to-day issue is if a guy gets it or multiple guys on your team get it and they have to quarantine for 14 days what does that do we see what's happening with baseball right now yeah they're shutting down games left and right it's not as easy you can shut down a a baseball game one of 60 games or one of 162 games normally and figure out a way to do it another time and double headers and all those different type of things what are you going to do if patrick mahomes and you know travis kelsey and Tyreek Hill all have the coronavirus on a Friday. Yep. I mean, and this, so they're going to be out that week and they're going to be out the following week. Like, wh- how are you going to even put out a product on there that people are going to be willing to watch? That's why I can't understand why their entire policy isn't built in. How do we protect our players from getting this virus? Mm-hmm. Because that that's, has- what, that, that's what has to happen. It, again, even for your own business, even if you don't think that the coronavirus is necessarily a big deal or that these guys are going to be fine, even if that's your perspective, from your own business, you can't afford to have your star players getting sick and, and having to quarantine and having to miss games. And, and that, that's not your NBA, league isn't built that way. Do you, NBA players are not happy about being away from their 10,000 square foot mansions um, and their families to be in these little, for us, normal people, yeah. those, those rooms are beautiful, <laughs> right? right? right, but right. They're not used to this, but they're willing to do it, right? Because there's a trust between and, and a joy that comes, that seems very different. And, and what's very frustrating about the NFL and, the, and, and MLB is that it's clearly the money. Because mm-hmm. if you really care, because there's not going to be fans in the stadiums, why wouldn't all the West Coast teams, there be three NFL stadiums that are used for the games and three East Coast teams just to be able to and say the week of games, the players that are playing in those facilities are going to be contained for a week and within a bubble. Why wouldn't you? It doesn't seem that it doesn't seem like rocket science, honestly. And, you know, I, I do one thing that's obvious. Right. And we'll just say it just so people know that we know it's obvious is that, you know, there are way more players in the NFL and way much more of a contact sport than you know, in terms of people breathing on each other and beating each other's space than, yeah. than other sports, right? So the challenges from the sport itself are substantially different, right? So they can't necessarily, it's not as easy to quarantine 1,800 players no, it's not. As, as the NBA has with 300, right? But baseball fumbled the bag completely. I mean, you have this, the, the dream sport in terms of being able to physically distance and, you know, wear a mask and keep, your, keep guys away from each other. And, and they, they just keep fumbling left and right. And then not to mention, and I think you mentioned this before, you already have c- cities in Arizona or cities in, yeah, like in Arizona and, and in Florida and different places where you guys go for spring training, different type of stuff. You could have easily created a bubble in that, in that circumstance. Um, and the bubble is what's necessary to keep people from, to reduce the chances of people getting this and there not being disruptions. If you're not trying to figure out a way to create some type of bubble, like even if you said, even if it's just a week of the game, or, you know, I don't even know. I, I don't know. But they have smart people that can figure this out. And yeah, they're not the doing challenge, a good job. The challenges are the challenges. How are you 
going to address them. And then I think there's also, you know, and this is a larger issue that I kind of have is why we have so much opposition to their being strict structure, right? It's like everybody wants things to be normal. And it's not, if you want to have sports, they can't be conducted normally. You have mm -hmm. to think about how do we conduct this in an abnormal world and build a new world around the new normal, not just keep having this, these delusions and, and thinking about what it was yesterday, if we want to have sports. Well, and, 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 and so that brings me to kind of college football, right. And the, the, the no fans thing, like the no fans is not enough to, to contain this and to stop no. this. At the end of the day, your product, and this is the thing that, you know, the NBA has figured out is your, are your players, right. And if your players are not healthy, or your players have players at the quarantine that ruins your product. So you, you have to figure out a way to protect your product college football. Um, and particularly Ohio state, we'll talk about Ohio state because in Ohio, they, Ohio basically is, you know, the orders came down. They can't have fans at their games. Yeah. That's college. That's from the Bengals and the Browns in, in Ohio state. They cannot have fans. Um, but college football, again, what are you going to do? Honestly, you got Michigan state, you have all these teams, these guys getting it again, even if you think this virus isn't that serious and these guys are all going to pass through it and, you know, they'll be fine. The disruption, the disruption that causes from guys having to sit out from, you know, not knowing, you know, people not knowing when they've been exposed to it or if they've been exposed to it. And then all of a sudden you find out 30 guys on your team have it on week three. And you're like, oh, okay, well, we built in a couple bye weeks. It's like, that's not real. If you don't have a plan to control the environments. And I know this is hard. Again, this is not about this as being hard, but these are billion dollar industries. So if figure it out, if you don't have a plan to control the environment to a certain degree, then you, what are we doing here? Honestly, what are we doing? Cause this yeah, is bullshit yeah, this, as a fan who wants to see the sport. This is, this, this is bullshit. We're not going to, this, there's not going to be football this year. Not like this. Yeah. Not. A, and that's, what's disappointing is that you don't feel like they're really trying hard right it's one thing we can all accept not having a season if for whatever reason it's unsafe to play mm -hmm. right but look the numbers don't lie how many positive tests have there been in the the nba which has very very strict guidelines mm -hmm. in terms of player activity in terms of what these guys can actually do let me remind you the players are willingly living inside a bubble mm -hmm. to play basketball mm -hmm. you're telling me nfl players that love playing the game wouldn't do the same instead oh we don't want to restrict our players from going home and and doing all these things and it's like yeah. the players you're seeing the response like dummies we don't want to expose our family so we're just going to opt out well and back to college too because i think that one thing that's uh that college has exposed is that is exposed the reality of this game this this thing is big business you know you yeah. can't really the way that you've tried to position college athletes you can't really justify not having other students on campus, not exposing them to other activities and, you know, student government and, you know, fraternities and all the other things that other kids on campus do. But then you can expose your athletes to playing and practicing. So how does that make sense? So it's starting to expose the realities and impact the Pac-12 players have come out unified mm -hmm. and basically said that, like, listen, we are not playing if we don't have COVID protections, if we don't have certain medical insurance for multiple yeah. years after this, if there's not adequate testing, if there's not revenue share, 
if there's not, you know, if you guys don't start tapping into some of those endowments to keep some of these other sports and, you know, people are saying, oh, these demands, these kids don't know how this thing works and some of it's unrealistic and maybe some of it is. But at the end of the day, the point is that these kids, and you've been saying this for years, until they are the ones that step up and say, listen, yeah. we're not playing, things are going to continue going along the lines that they can continue to go on. And what these guys have done is even if they're aiming high, fine, they aim high, but at least let's start a negotiation. Let's get to the yeah. table. And one of the things that I thought stand was very up for your right. If you don't stand up for your own rights in this country, no one's going to give a shit. Right? But again, it's hard to put that, that type of pressure, right. And responsibility on 17 and 18 year olds, right. Who are just, who don't know much about the world. It's really the, no, us maybe. that are supposed to be the ones that are protecting them. But so the fact that they've had to accept this burden is, is sad, but it's also tremendous that they've done it. And again, they've outlined things that I think a lot of people are st- have known, but now other people are starting to see, which is that all of this is related. The COVID, Black Lives Matter, you know, the inequities in college sports, they're all related. They all stem from a lot of the same issues, which is yep. the way society has been structured and dominated. COVID is, is affecting a lot of people, but it's disproportionately affecting people of color. And that's not by anything genetic. A lot of times it has to do with socioeconomic issues, access to healthcare. Black yep. Lives Matter, again, a lot of people are getting killed and brutalized by the police, but the numbers are double. Um, you're, you're twice as likely to get killed by the police if you're an African-American person. Same thing with college sports. It's, again, white people, other people of, of different nationalities contribute to the success of college football and basketball, particularly the big revenue sports, but it's predominantly black kids that are contributing to that and not seeing, not seeing the returns that the administrators and coaches and athletic directors who are predominantly white are seeing. So they're, these kids have come together and said, listen, this, the, all of this stuff is related. Let's talk about it all now. There's no reason to talk about one and not the other. And, and, and that's the key, right? Like ignorance is bliss. A lot of, we see this a lot of times, like sometimes it's not necessarily as evil as we sometimes think it is. It, it really is about the money. Like mm-hmm. once our university starts generating 20, $30 million a year. They're obviously, this is how this country is set up. They think about their own interests. So if you're a player, you have to come to the table and say, these are my interests. And once you start talking about it, that's the only way you force an institution that's either willfully or financially ignorant mm-hmm. to start saying, you know what, we need to change because they see it now. Well, the other thing, too, now that this is brought up and uh, I think it was Dennis Dodd, CBS, wrote an article about this uh, this earlier this week about basically the NCAA and these power five conferences are at they're, they're at odds right now. And he said they're not yeah. just at a standstill. They're actually adversaries because the way the NCAA is operating versus the way the power five is operating is different. And the power five conferences are starting to realize, like, listen. We don't need you. We, don't <laughs> we need never did anybody. need you. Yeah. And now more than ever, they're starting to really realize it, especially if they start to interfere with how they want to actually run their sports. Um, and we all, but we've always known that NCAA was a sham and unnecessary, right? It's yeah. not, it, it was never necessary. So a again, lot of these regulatory agencies are right. It's like, and, yeah. And, 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 the, and the, but the sham is being exposed. Right. And I think the sham of this idea that these are just, student athletes and amateurism and you know let's just let's just do it for the school and all this you know all this talk is starting to really really be exposed by the by uh this issue these issues that's that's why i think um we need to look at it at this time period as 
in a lot of ways to reevaluate a lot of our structures. And mm -hmm. I think that so long as we look at that honestly and look at these things honestly, there really is an opportunity on the whatever, whenever the other side of all of this is, for us all to be in a better situation. Um, yeah, we the people who the people who survived, the people who survived. You know, and yeah. I think I know that you mean that, but it's also always important to say that. You know, there are a lot yeah. of people who are going to suffer, struggle, and die. Yeah, I, saw, I, I saw an article today. It's like one of the things that bothers me is people are like, well, um, most of the cases are asymptomatic, but this disease is so nobody knows what's going to happen. It, you can have lasting effects five years from now. And I saw an article this morning about how it increases damage to your heart over yep. time. Yep. Right. And, and long function. I mean, these are things like there's stories. If you uh, there's a hashtag, there's not enough data out here to know yet what this thing actually is. And that's what really bothers me. That's one. That's one. But the second part of it is that there is enough, there are enough people out here who are counted as recovered, who are struggling still. There's a, yeah. gosh, I think it's called living with COVID or there's, there's a hashtag on Twitter where if you check it, you can go and, and read. And I don't always go cause it's, it's scary and depressing, but it, there are people who are giving real life accounts of what this thing is and they're counted as quote unquote recovered but they're not recovered. I mean, this is weeks. The one lady is talking about six months and the, just, yeah. if you read it, you'd be like, I'd rather die, you know? Yeah. And I hate to say that I'm not making a lot of it. You know that, but you don't want to go through the type of stuff that people are going through. So let's not sit here and, and act like, yeah, th that's great that there are a ton of asymptomatic cases. That's fantastic. And if I ever catch it, I pray to God that that's what mine is like, but that doesn't tell you the full story. And so I just think that, and again, this isn't done to scare people. This is just like, let's, Let's not sit here and act like we know everything about it. Like this is kind of what you're saying when we're only, a, you know, a few months into this thing and people's reactions and, and uh, issues with this thing are that very, you know, greatly. You know, what's unique to me, which is very confusing. And there are a lot of things that are confusing about our country to me. But on one hand, you have all these people talking about we need law and order. We need law and order. But then they don't want to be told to wear face masks. I don't want to be told like, and the thing that, that really bothers me is I've noticed this and is that when you give relaxed rules, people relax accordingly. When mm -hmm. I go to the grocery store, the grocery stores aren't taking the same precautions. There's not always someone standing outside wiping all the carts down. Right. There's not always the hand sanitizer things are empty now. They're always empty. They're always yeah. empty. Mm -hmm. So if you're not being, you, on one hand, you want law and order. So what are you mean? Like in terms of coded language? It's clear what you mean by law and order then, right? Well, it also, that's just a, it's a history. If you look at just the history of the United States and politics in the United States, that's, that's a signal, right? Law and order has always been a signal to. It's just funny to me that they say that, but then they don't want to live under law and order. It's well, so weird. Well, it's right. Like you said, they, they want you to not have your rights to protest. Right. But then. Yeah. <laughs> But then they want to talk about their freedoms when it comes to not wearing a mask, right? In the same like, sentence, they'll say that. You're right? willing to hold up a whole plane. Like these people are willing to hold up a whole flight. And, and that same person thinks that protesters should, protesters, I'm not talking about rioters, should protesters should be arrested and shot. And yeah. so, but speaking of that, let's talk about, let's talk about what's going on in Washington, right? When you're talking about the stimulus standstill, right? And there've been conversations around it about, oh, well, we don't want to give people this $600 a week because then they're not going to want to go back to work and, you know, and, and not realizing again, you want to talk about law and order. What do, what do you think happens to people when you say, okay, listen, you don't have a job and you don't have any access to, there aren't a bunch of new jobs. So you don't really have access to a job. 
we're not going to give you any more money because we think that you're, that's going to make you not want to go work. Even though we know if you're just talk to a, any random person, you could tell that that money was what was keeping a lot of things sustainable in the society. A lot of people were able to sustain their households, pay their bills, pay for, you know, you know, get things ready for kids going back to school, so on and so forth, and deal with the fallout of COVID and the failed, failed response to COVID and what that the circumstances that that's created. And now you cushy ass politicians want to say, oh, we don't want to give people this money because it's not going to incentivize them to work. Like I can understand, first of all, that argument, I understand it in theory, right? Um, but even if you agree with that, which I, I don't generally, I mean, I agree that I, you have to at least understand two things. One, that means that people's wages were probably low to begin with, if that $600 is making such a huge difference, number one. And then number two, this isn't the same, this isn't normal time period. This yeah. isn't a situation where it's like abundance of jobs and people are just like, nah, I'd rather stay home. Mm-hmm. If anyone's going to work right now, first of all, one, they're great, they're lucky, you're blessed. And number two, they're putting themselves at risk. So to, to, to just sit there and just say, well, you know, it is what it is. Wait till you, you want to talk about law and order? Let's see what this society looks like in a few weeks if people aren't getting those checks anymore. Well, th- this is the fundamental issue in saying that we have a failed system right now. It's, it's not saying that it can't be fixed, but it's mm-hmm. so broken, you know, and, and there are so many reasons. I'm not even talking about Republican or Democrat president. They all have to own this failure. Mm-hmm. Right. Because who is suffering? Like, it's like if you don't have a viable solution and can't come to an agreement. Mm-hmm. Right. Then what you can't do is just leave shit up in the air. What are you guys doing? You guys are supposed to be working around the clock. If you're not solving these problems, what are each of you getting paid? A hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, not to mention all the secret deals they're doing. They're all multimillionaires. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're being put and elected to go to Washington to represent the interests of the people. So if you can't get anything, like when the country is at a standstill, do you understand what just letting something lapse does to the economy? Uh, The greatest uh, thing, the the most important thing for the economy is to have some sort of clarity of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. 70% of this, and this, I go back to this, 70% of this economy, and it's also about not understanding what this country actually needs to work. Mm-hmm. 70% of this economy is based on consumption. Mm-hmm. You have 30 million people and, and a lot of the consumption happens from the middle class and below. Mm-hmm. You take away these $600 in benefits and people start struggling, they start being evicted. Then you're, like you said, the law and order part is going to come mm-hmm. into play. Mm-hmm. But also, you're putting your economy, you're in this, this entire economy at risk. If you can't figure out what the solution is, then you have to continue to prop it up the way that it's being propped up because uncertainty creates chaos. And that, and, and, and that's, that's well said. And I think the other thing too is, you know, I don't understand why every bill has to have like 75 things in it. Like, oh, why are you putting hundreds of billions of dollars into fighter jets? It's not about the people. It's about the people. Exactly. Exactly. It shows you that very clearly. Just, just put, do one package that just deals with the people, right? The 30 million people, like you said, across the country, who are 11% of people right now who are, who are, don't know what's coming next. Um, and then deal with the other stuff and later, well, right? And Mitt Romney proposes a bill 
that says just extend it until we figure it out and they can't approve that oh we can't take a piecemeal approach to this thing listen man it's 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 interesting out here it is and the thing is is that a lot of people are starting to see um how ugly this this game is right because this is again these are the times when you really really need your elected officials right these are the times you know your day-to-day most times you don't really see them or hear them or know what they're doing necessarily. You might know something here and there, but not that much. But these are the times when you really get to see. And everyone is seeing from, like you said, both sides of the aisle with regard to this particular issue. What are you guys don't care about me? You don't, you don't you care. literally don't care. The fact that you'll make it and the fact that the argument is rooted in, oh, you're not going to go work. So that's why we're not extending it. Not that, oh, we don't think you need it. But oh, we don't have it <laughs> or that we don't have it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But that, oh, no, because then it's going to make you lazy. I mean, that is that is really, really serious. And I'm telling you, like yeah. you said, this next few weeks, and if they don't figure, figure something out, all the way the economy has been propped up and the stock market and all this other shit has been propped up the last couple months, it's all that shit's out the window. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's sad that this is happening during an election year because it's clear that this is all about both sides positioning themselves to win the election in November. And you can't like, what do they say always when war happens? You put your politics aside and we unify as a country. We're at war right now. It's not with an enemy. Yeah. It's with a virus. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you guys aren't putting that, those two things aside right now is just sad. And we're we're going to see where we end up because this is this is this is coming, man. The, the, the People are talking about oh, increased crime and stuff like that last couple of months imagine what are people what if you cannot work and you can't get assistance from the government that you need that you paid that people pay taxes for by the way that's a lot of money is that that's coming back as taxpayer money and you also don't have opportunities for jobs because people aren't hiring like that and not only are they not hiring they're laying people off and you're just gonna and they're gonna be more layoffs what do you th- what what do you think is going to happen? I'm not yeah. even I don't you don't even have to be a politician to answer that question. What do you think is going to happen? I, I'm very happy. I've I've seen this right. Like I'm very happy and very fearful for small landlords right mm-hmm. now, as well as obviously the tenants as well. Mm-hmm. But the type of bullshit that everyone is going to be dealing with and fear that people are going to be living in because it's also again we go back to what this does to people's mental health. People mm-hmm. who even before had rational minds and had self-control what poverty does and what fear and uncertainty does is you know it's been studied over and over it can trigger people to do things that they normally wouldn't do 100 percent. that's what i'm scared and, of. and that's what and that's what yojana just said to us earlier in the show she yeah. talked about that about what what does that do to someone's mindset when you're talking about crime you cannot talk about can't not talk about poverty and and like you said, fear and desperation and what that drives people to do. And she even mentioned studies where, you know, if you controlled for those things or, you know, took people who are in those traditional environments and and gave them resources that crime goes down. It's not rocket science. So yeah. uh, but unfortunately, they're acting that way. But we'll see. I mean, we're obviously going to continue following this. And, yeah. and we'll move. Let's move on from that. Uh, last couple just quick shout outs before we end news and notes. Um, Bobby Schmurter's out of jail. <laughs> Something's funny. So we'll see what happens with that. See if he creates some new music. Um, and then The Rock, he bought, he bought the XFL. $15 million. That seems like, it seems like it would be more expensive than that as an entity. But they've had such bad luck that maybe that is a steal. Um, is, there, is there a real chance of him resurrecting that in your mind? I mean, this is real life ballers, right? Right, right, right. I mean, the thing is, I think 
what's dope about this is that The Rock has been pro- has proven to be successful, and I think that this is authentic to his story, right? Mm-hmm. If you look back at his story, he was a high-profile player at the University of Miami but could never really make it at the NFL level. So he understands that player. Mm-hmm. Well. So That's a good point. Regardless of like whether how successful this is or isn't, I think that it's a worthy shot and it's authentic to his brand and it, it says a lot about The Rock. I think that's right. And I think, and I think we talked about this before they they have, they have a brand that people care about. Um, but I think who runs it and who people see as the face and head of it will determine whether or not people want to tune in. I think with him, he's just, everything he touches is, is, you know, gold for the most part. So I don't see this as a, as really that risky of an investment for him specifically. So, yeah. Yeah, Sometimes you make investments that you lose on, but you still make the investment because it's something you're passionate about. Yeah, right? exactly. That's, that's what's happening here. And I, I, I hope that it's successful. Same. All right. That's all we have for news and notes. You're listening to the pilot boys podcast. Ondo media here in Columbus has been working with us to keep the pilot boys in production during the pandemic, as well as getting our YouTube videos going. It's all about telling your story to your audience. So give John at Ondo media a shout. You can find all of their media consulting at ondomedia.com. That's all we have for today's show. Big thanks to our guest, Yojana Viramasuneni. Thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Subscribe to the Pilot Boys podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And follow the hosts on Twitter. I am at Mechanon Music. MV is at Viswant. And don't forget, grab some Pilot Boys wristbands and face masks at shop.pilotboys.com. Always remember, be you, you is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on up. We gon' fly, boys, we get up. So You're listening to the Pilot Boys.